Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. It's good to see each and every one of you here. And if you're our guest this morning, maybe if it's your first time or I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, let me start by introducing myself. My name is Aaron, and I'm the lead pastor here at NCC. And we're excited that you're joining us this morning. It's the last week of this series called Elephant in the Room. And it's been a great series where we've been looking at some difficult topics and some tough conversations. We've been looking at what God's word says about that and how do we respond to the culture around us as Christians and um, how do we interact with people. And so it's been a great series. I wanna encourage you, if you've missed any of the weeks where we've talked about other religions or we've talked about God's design for our sexuality um, or even just um, some tough topics. Last week we talked about should Christians drink alcohol and legalize drugs in politics? So they've been some great conversations. I wanna encourage you, go back and listen to the podcast. We've gotten tremendous feedback just about God challenging people and people understanding scripture in a new way. And so I wanna encourage you to do that. And this is the last conversation we're gonna have in this series. And every week um, we've highlighted a resource. So I wanna do that again this morning. Um, this is a great book for some of the topics that we're gonna be talking about this morning and some of the questions. It's called The Case for Christ. And it's by um, the author Lee Strobel, who was a journalist and was an atheist, did not believe in God, didn't have faith in who God was, but he decided to study who Jesus was. And through the process of studying and research and journalism and all of these things, he came to have a faith in who Jesus was and um, converted to Christianity. And so he has a lot of great insight in this book. I want to give this away this morning to someone. Okay, right there. Hector already hopped up. Okay. There you go. But you can grab this book on Amazon or on your, um, your tablet or any device like that. Um, and it's a great book to have kind of in that resource of continuing the conversation that we're going to have this morning. And like we've done every week, I want to encourage you. There's going to be some really great content. I loved what we covered in first service. So I want to encourage you. In front of you, there's a card that says sermon notes. It's in that little seat back in front of you. You can take that out. Take out your smartphone, your tablet, whatever you have on you, and take some notes because we want to wrestle with the ideas that we're covering. And once again, we want to know why we believe what we believe. Not just, oh, my pastor said that, or I grew up thinking that. No, we want you to be able to look at the scripture and wrestle with it for yourself. Some of these ideas and, and what the Bible says, and for you to have that understanding for yourself. So it's important that you take notes on some of this stuff, that you write it down Go back later this week and reread some of those scriptures and ask God what he's saying to you through his word. And we have the privilege this morning of having some guests with us that are going to be a part of the panel and help us with some of the questions that we're covering. So would you please welcome um, Dr. Jeff Magruder this morning and Dr. Bruce Rosedahl this morning as they make their way forward. Dr. Jeff, you've been with us before, but maybe if both of you guys would just take a moment and just introduce yourself to our church. Great. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Jeff Magruder. I'm a professor at uh, Southwestern Assemblies of God University, where I teach uh, preaching, apologetics, and philosophy. And I should also point out that my wife is from Mesquite, so yeah. uh, I have a, I have a, a very... I have a real uh, bias toward thinking uh, a lot of your community, so I'm so glad to be here this morning, and thank you, Pastor Aaron, for the invitation. Yeah. And my name is Bruce Rosedahl. I'm also a professor at Southwestern, and I teach in the area of Bible and theology, and it's great to be here. We're really honored today. Yes. 
So today we're going to be tackling some topics around the Bible and just some different thoughts around the Bible, questions that people have about the Bible. So we will jump in to these different questions and both of you guys can kind of comment and then we'll move on to the next one. So the first one that we want to tackle this morning is how do we know the books of the Bible are inspired and not just the ideas of men? Well, let me just first say how much I appreciate your church doing this because I think that this is really, really important for people to not only have a space where they can explore these questions, but have yeah. this information as well. So really appreciate Pastor Aaron's vision about this. So the process that the early church used in discerning those books that were inspired and, and, and thus authoritative, um, it, it had to do with the, what was, the, the criteria is referred to as the canon. And the canon is that list of books that are recognized as being inspired and authoritative. And they did have a few um, criteria that they utilized when discerning and when discovering which of those books should belong in that list. The first is who wrote it? Was it written okay. by an apostle or someone who is close to an apostle? Uh, second, did it have universal applicability? Was it something that would be helpful to the church universal? Whether that be Galatia, whether that be Corinth, whether that be Mesquite or New York or Buffalo or Singapore. Um, and then third, uh, there was the issue of was there a consistency, a continuity between the theology and ethics that they knew could be traced back to both the Hebrew Bible and okay. the teachings of Jesus and these letters or these books that were being considered. And then very quickly, I'll, I'll mention a fourth that's often not touched on. Those three are usually mentioned when this conversation comes up. But let me mention a fourth. There was, uh, in the early church fathers, a rule of faith that they utilized to evaluate other people's preaching, teaching, and books that were being considered for uh, entrance into the canon. And the rule of faith included, was Jesus's incarnation being yep. taught in these books? Was the Trinitarian nature of God taught in these books? Uh, was the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and specifically the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, being taught, not simply felt, but being taught in these books? Yeah. And so there was a criteria and there was a process by which they discerned that which was going to be in the Bible and that which wasn't. Last thought uh, before we hear from Dr. Rostall, one of the things I'll encourage students to do, you can get on the internet very easily and look up which books were considered but not allowed okay. and which books were uh, from the get-go rejected. And some of those books you can actually find online and are able to read them. And I think it would not take someone much time to see that the content of those other books that were considered but ultimately rejected or rejected from the get-go, there are reasons why they weren't let in. Mm -hmm. And they either don't follow uh, or, or rather do not pass the criteria that I just mentioned, yep. or their theological or religious beliefs are so radically different from mm -hmm. anything that can be traced back to Jesus's life and ministry that yeah. it's easy to see why they would have been rejected. Okay, that's good. Right, what I might add is, you know, the, sometimes there's a myth out there that <clears throat> there was one church council that decided everything, mm -hmm. that there was all this debate happening for two, 300 years, and then some church council, and some people want to say it was Constantine at Nicaea, they just made this big decision, and if you will, the winners chose the books that we get. That's not what happened. It's, it's, it is not the way it worked. Uh, the way Dr. Magruder described it so well is that they were recognizing those books that were written by the apostles and had a great testimony witness from the very beginning. There was never one church council that decided this. They were authoritative from the moment that they were written. 
Now, the other thing I might just add that's kind of a, a sub-question to yeah. this that you may hear asked today, but how can we even know that the Bible that we're reading today is the same Bible that they wrote? Yeah. We don't have any originals. And I don't, hopefully that's not shocking. We don't have any originals that they wrote. But there's, there's also a little bit of a myth. We may not have the, co uh, the hard copy of the originals, but we do have the content of what they wrote. And the way we do that is the same as any other book. Now we know the Bible is not just the same as any other book, but if you use the criteria of looking at how many manuscripts do we have, what is the archeological evidence in defending, and what about fulfilled prophecy? I mean, that's a big factor when you talk about looking at the Old Testament and Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of, of the Messianic prophecies. When you bring these things together, there's this overwhelming testimony and confidence that you have that, that the modern Bibles that we have today is reliable and trustworthy in what they wrote in that day. And so when somebody says, well, you don't even have the originals, well, it's true, we don't have the hard copy, but we do have the content of what they wrote. And that's not a faith statement. That's just looking at the history of the evidence that we have. So one thing I would just say is you can have great confidence yeah. in the Bible that you have today. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And to add to that, and I don't have the exact statistic, you guys may know this, but I think it's we have either the most manuscripts or the closest manuscripts to even other ancient, other ancient books, I think like the Odyssey or some of those other books. Actually, the Bible, we have closer manuscripts or more of those original manuscripts are closer to that. Absolutely, and that's a key factor. When you start looking at the best that the world has to offer, books like Homer's Iliad yep. and some others, uh, it used to be that we, would, we had about 648 manuscripts for that. We now have 1,700. Okay. I just uh, discovered the other day that it's gone up. We have over 5,400, actually it's gone up to 5,700 just Greek manuscripts and ancient papyri. That's not all the manuscripts. Uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 24,000 manuscripts, some dating back to the second century and pretty early, some of the pieces. So yeah, it's, it's pretty overwhelming, yeah. both the number of manuscripts, the quality of them, and the time gap issue. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. Okay, the second question, why does there seem to be, when we read the Bible, in the Old Testament, a God of judgment, and in the New Testament, a God of grace? How do we kind of reconcile those two pictures of God that we get? Sure. The one thing I would say is that that is a myth, believe it or not, that's been around all the way back to the first century. There's a guy named Marcion who did the exact same thing. He said he basically wanted to throw out the Old Testament. He wanted to get rid of it. And anything that seemed to be favorable towards Jewish individuals in the New Testament, he wanted to throw out. It really comes from a misreading because the fact is the God of our Bible has not changed from beginning to end. So think about something like this. We think about some of the judgments in the Old Testament, but there's judgments in the New as well. Think about Ananias and Sapphira who, who, who lied and were struck down. We think about the book of Revelation where judgment is coming. The whole concept of God as a God of love comes out of the Old Testament. And so usually what happens when people say, well, it's a God of judgment in the Old and a God of love in the New, it's they've never read closely to recognize it is the same God from begin to end. He never changes. And the God of love in the New Testament is the God of love in the Old. And the God of justice and righteousness in the Old is the same God in the New. He never changes. Yep. 
Jeff. Uh, you know, one thing I, I would add to that, I appreciate that you're promoting Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Yes. I think that's probably, in terms of popular apologetics, one of the more important books of the last 20 years. He did a follow-up book to that called The Case for Faith. Yes. And in it, he interviews a Christian philosopher named Norman Geisler. And one of the points that Geisler makes that I think would um, complement Dr. Rostall's comments quite nicely is while God doesn't change, sometimes as he's dealing with people and they have more information and more knowledge, he will deal with them differently. And an analogy, not, an, not a perfect one, but an analogy might be thinking of how we deal with children versus how we deal with them as adolescents versus how we deal with them yeah. as adults. And so there will be times in which your strategies or your methods might change, but the character of the person who's dealing with that child who has their That's best good. interests at heart never changes. Yep. Yeah. That's really good. Okay, the next question, what does the Bible say about hell? And along with that, how can a loving God punish people for all eternity? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, let me say first that I think that when we talk about a person feeling like hell is fair or mm -hmm. hell is just, there is something about their acknowledgement of that that will not be possible unless the Holy Spirit first shows them their need for forgiveness and their sense yeah. of judgment. And so when I meet someone who's not a Christian who finds the idea of hell, you know, repellent or uh, unfair, I can appreciate that. And there was a time in my life that I likely would have felt the same way. But when the gospel was presented to me and I understood how bad I was yeah. and how many times I had violated my conscience, how many times I disobeyed my parents, you know, there were 10 commandments, I yeah. broke 13 of them. Uh, <laughs> no, no, really, I, I, it's more like seven, because if there were 13, I'd be in prison. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I remember being overwhelmed by the sense that I was wrong I had done things to deserve the trouble that I was going to get into and that God was now giving me a way out. Yeah. And when people become convinced of the reality of hell, it is almost always coupled with the reality of God offering his grace. Yeah. It's like saying, you know, I didn't think this ship was sinking. I thought this ship was going along just fine. But now that I know it's sinking, a life raft is being offered to me as yeah. well. And so I want to say that when I encounter people who find, you know, the idea of hell, you know, again, repugnant or unfair, I, I sympathize with that. I understand that. I think that if there were any Christian doctrine, we might want to be, you know, we might be tempted to want to change or yeah. edit somehow. Uh, it would be the doctrine of hell. But when the Holy Spirit helps us to see the depravity that we have and the uh, sinfulness that we suffer from, we recognize that uh, this is something that God reveals to us in order to save us from. Now, uh, a few other thoughts we might add about hell. Uh, hell is described in the Bible, to your question specifically, as uh, a place of uh, gnashing of teeth, eternal darkness. And a lot of these are, are images and metaphors that are meant to communicate a larger idea. And yep. the larger idea is that we have rejected God and thus we are separated from him. We are being given what it is that we have chosen in this life. Yeah. We have asked to uh, be separate from God in this life and God honors that choice in the next life. Uh, the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. A person goes throughout their lives telling God, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, only to find out one day he has honored their request. Okay. 
This is probably one of the biggest questions that I think if you've ever talked with people that really bother, bothers them about the Christian faith yeah. is the concept of hell. And, I, and let me just say, it's, it's never an easy thing. Uh, I teach in the area of theology, so this is something that I teach on regularly. It's, it's not a fun topic. I believe the Bible is very clear about it. But I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding. I think Dr. McGregor's comments were right on in terms of kind of helping us frame how I think outside the church, people don't necessarily approach the question the same way you and I do. In fact, they really come with this assumption. This is really the image that I hear most often, that we're basically good. God is basically uncompassionate, unfair. He's, he's a God who's hiding and making things very difficult. He's basically created a maze. <laughs> and if you can find the right way in the answer, then you can be saved. Otherwise, he's almost like a cosmic puzzle maker, just so excited to send you off into eternity, to eternal punishment. And it's such an unbiblical perspective because the biblical picture is it, that we as humanity have rebelled against God. We are running hard, fast the other way. And God is spending eternity pursuing us. The, I think the great picture is Genesis 3, because if you think yeah. Genesis 3 is the, the record of the fall of humanity, and when sin enters the world, before then there was great fellowship between humanity, between obviously Adam and Eve, and between their maker. As soon as sin enters the, the, the world, their relationship, talking about Adam and Eve, is broken, they're ashamed, and then what's the first thing they do when God comes to visit again, if you will? They run and hide. <laughs> I think when we re read that story and we hear that God goes up to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? We hear a giant judge with a club ready to come after them rather than seeing an act of grace because if God would not have gone to Adam and Eve, they would have never come to him. And so That's somehow good. I think we right. think that we are more compassionate than God when in the reality is, God has spent eternity reaching out to humanity, and we've spent eternity rejecting him. Mm -hmm. And so it, it doesn't answer everything. I, yeah. I know, as Dr. McGregor said, that for some people that will never satisfy their understanding of hell, but it is this constant rejection. In fact, in, the, in Revelation 20, which records the great white throne judgment, when the books are open, we never read of anything where people are repenting. Yeah. They are defiant in their rejection of God. And as Lewis says, God sends them where they wanted, which is away from his presence. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. The next question, will people who have never heard about Jesus go to hell? What does the Bible say about that? That is good. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Christian church has struggled with that. Mm -hmm. and. I'm going to struggle with it a little out loud here okay. Okay? in front of everybody. I'm going to struggle a little bit. Um, the, the clear picture of the New Testament is that there is a message of reconciliation that God wants promoted throughout the world. It is not simply an announcement of reconciliation. It's an invitation for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so when you happen upon people who will say that God has decided to save everyone no matter what even if they were 
unaware of it or unwilling to be a part of it that really doesn't jive with what you see in the New Testament. Uh, it's not the way Jesus behaved. It's not the way Paul or Peter behaved. It's not the way you know Priscilla and Aquila behaved. Yeah. Uh, and Priscilla's mentioned first because she's the better preacher, uh, <laughs> you know, better than her husband. And so um, I, I think that we any doctrine that we hear people promote about God's reconciling people who are unaware of being reconciled or who are unwilling to be reconciled has to be tested against the way in which the people in the New Testament actually behaved. And yeah. that was that they went out and, and preached and said, look, repent of your sins. There's good news, but you got to hear the bad news first and you have yeah. to acknowledge it. Now, here's my struggle. Here's my wrestling. There was a very famous evangelical theologian named J.I. Packer. Mm -hmm. And Packer said that God has every right to decide who will be saved and under what conditions that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so he embraced what he called a soft exclusivism. The only way people are saved is through the preaching of the gospel mm -hmm. and their receiving of that gospel. But if God has ways that he is working that he has not made us aware of, yeah. like a general who tells you know, soldiers, you need to do this, but not necessarily reveal to the soldiers everything that's part of the plan. Yeah. The soldiers still have the obligation to follow through with the commission that's been given to them, even mm -hmm. if they don't fully understand everything that is going on. Yeah. So when we get to heaven, if we find some surprises, and I like to think we'll, we'll find some surprises. Yeah. You know? Well, there'll be a few people going, you made it? I didn't. Well, um, when we get to heaven, what we might discover are some surprises. What yeah. we won't discover is anybody saying, I deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. And in hell, it will not be discovered that there's anybody who says, I don't deserve to be here. Yeah. So that's me wrestling aloud. Okay, that. that's okay. good. Okay. Yeah. Let me give you a couple passages just to look at maybe down the road. One, Romans 118 is a classic passage where Paul lays out that nobody has an excuse. Yeah, but yeah. I haven't heard, but Paul says, yeah, but all creation testifies that there's a creator. It doesn't gives us, it, creation doesn't tell us the gospel message. We want to be real clear about that. But creation does testify that there is a creator, and Paul says they have even rejected that. He continues in the book of Romans to walk through this argumentation. He gets to Romans 10, and he raises a second question. Okay, one, what about those who've never heard? He says, they're still without excuse because they've ignored the witness that they've had of creation, their conscience, and the drawing of the Spirit. Yeah, but what about those who are religious and sincere? And Romans 10 addresses that because Paul says, my heart is broken for my brothers and sisters who have a zeal, yeah. but a zeal without knowledge. Mm. They think that they can earn their righteousness and be saved through works, and nobody can stand before God based on their own righteousness. Mm. And then he goes in that very same passage, because he's been making an argument all the way through Romans, and he says, no one has an excuse, even the religious sincere don't have an excuse. And then he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then the very next verse. But how can they call on one in whom they have not heard? Yeah. And I'm convinced, because to be honest, this breaks me up every time I have to teach it in class. And I'm not putting on a show, I'm not trying to be dramatic. But the reality of the losses of the world, I, I wonder sometimes, I think there are real legitimate questions we have. Yeah. That, that's normal. But I think the weight of the Great Commission, that we have to take this gospel around the world, and it really does make a difference, I think the weight of that 
is very heavy to carry. Yeah. And we almost want to find another way. But the, the other thing I guess I would just point out in regards to that, uh, hearing from the, uh, the mouth of Jesus directly, Jesus sat across from the, one of the leading teachers of his day, Nicodemus, who certainly believed in a God, certainly was living a righteous life, certainly one of the leaders of his day. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again, yeah. which is a spiritual rebirth. And so that is necessary. And of course, Nicodemus is, is just flabbergasted. He goes, how can this be? And that's that famous phrase where, that, that we have where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, puts their trust in him, shall have everlasting life. And so, yeah, I think the weight of the Great Commission is, is a heavy thing. And as a prof, I'm off, I often internally break down going, am I doing what I need to do? Yeah. I, I do believe so, but I do almost every semester have this quandary. You know, I have pastored, I've, I've done some work on the mission field. Mm -hmm. Do I need to be someplace else? Now, I, I believe I'm where God wants me to be, but the weight of the Great Commission is not an easy thing to carry, but it's also why you're here in Mesquite to make a difference here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's good. And then one of the last questions, why do we still follow some of the rules in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments or others, but then there seems to be quite a bit of laws that Christians no longer uphold that were in the Old Testament? Sure. I'll start on that one and pass it over to Dr. Magruder. The, there does seem to be a misunderstanding that somehow we arbitrarily pick what we want out of the old mm -hmm. and discard what we don't want. And you know, this is a big issue for our world today. When you start debating issues related to uh, same-sex issues, uh, other cultural issues that, where people will say, look, we understand in the Old Testament various things were forbidden, but they for forbid things that we kind of go, well, that's a little weird. Yeah. I mean, we don't do the dietary laws anymore. We don't do, we don't forbid the bringing together of different uh, types of clothing. Uh, there's many things that we don't do in the Old Testament. So again, why do we take the Ten Commandments? Why do we think the commands towards marriage and the sanctity of life still apply today? And I think it's a fair question. I think we need to be willing to step back and go, well, wait, why? Yeah. Why do we do that? And, but there really is a good consistent reason, and that is some of the things that you read in your Bible in the Old Testament relate to ceremonial cleanliness issues or civil issues related to the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. They were things for that time and that culture, but that's not everything. Now, we don't get to pick which things those are. We look in the scriptures to find the consistent message that goes from Genesis to Revelation. So, for example, let's just take the sanctity of life. From the very first chapter of your Bible, the, make, the Bible makes it very clear that all life is sacred. All life. The unborn, the born, the elderly. It doesn't matter who they are. Every person is made in the image of God and worthy of respect. That isn't a temporary thing. That wasn't cultural tied to the nation of Israel. That is a foundational truth that actually then undergirded yeah. so many of their laws. And the, the other thing that really helps us is when we go to the New Testament and find them repeated, and we find them reaffirmed. For example, the dietary laws, Jesus said directly, we don't need to keep them. They were a ceremonial cleanliness, they didn't do anything, there was nothing moral about them in terms of making you more holy, it's something that God did that, 
for the nation of Israel to have them stand out for a time and a season, but there's nothing unholy about shrimp or unholy about uh, rabbit, if you want to go for whatever, yeah. you know, whatever <laughs> the food is, uh, pork or whatever. It was something that he had them do, but sanctity of life, <laughs> sanctity of marriage, yeah. and even something we don't often talk about, but the sanctity of sexuality, God created it in their specific designs for it. We're not trying to be arbitrary. There, is, there really is a consistency of message that we're, yeah. we're looking through there. Fine. Right. Thank you, Dr. Rosal. Well, a few thoughts about that. First, let me pick up on this idea of there being a continuity. One of the ways that uh, we'll look to see how we can discover the differences between that which was temporary and that which is eternal or that was for them and then and this is for us and here and now is to look from Genesis through Revelation and see if there's a, a same voice, a same teaching all the way across. And, and there are several examples, and Dr. Rostall has touched on those, that do indeed fall into that category. Uh, the second thing that I would say is that you'll remember earlier with Pastor Aaron's questions about God's dealing with people in the Old Testament New Testament, I suggested that God deals with people the way we'll often deal with children, and as they get older, we'll deal with them slightly differently, and there are certain rules and regulations we'll place on their life when they're 10, so they'll be ready for life when they're 20. Well, when you look at the ceremonial laws, and when you look at some of the uh, ritualistic laws, and even some of the civil laws, that was meant to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And that's especially true with the ceremonial and ritual laws. And in the New Testament, we see them pointing back, for example, the need for a blood sacrifice to atone for sins, and the need for that sacrifice yeah. to be perfect and set apart. All of that prepared them for the coming of Jesus. You might remember that when John the Baptist first lays his eyes on Jesus in the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Well, when he makes that observation, he is utilizing the uh, training and the instruction that God has given Israel up until that yeah. point about the need for a lamb and the need for a sacrifice. I want to mention a passage in scripture that's almost never talked about and it's really worth writing down. Okay, so here's your homework from <laughs> Dr. Rosedahl, Dr. Magruder. <laughs> Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. They are wrestling, they are debating, and they are struggling with this issue. How much of this is for us now and how much was for them and then. And specifically what generated that issue was, what do you do about the fact that there are non-Jews that are now becoming part of this, this church? And in a letter written by the apostles to the Gentile churches, to sum it up, they basically say this, you're not responsible for all of these rules and rituals. Here's two things you have to avoid though, immorality and idolatry. Immorality and idolatry. Those two practices are still forbidden for God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in ancient Israel and in North Texas. Yeah, that's really good. Can we give our guests a hand this morning for tackling some of these tough topics? Thank you, we Pastor. really appreciate it, yes. And this is, I wanna encourage you, some of those passages that they gave you, once again, I hope you wrote those down to go back to look at them um, this week to explore those and read for yourself. What we've mentioned all along in this series is we want to know why we believe what we believe. Not just that we heard someone else say it, we wanna wrestle with those passages ourselves and really look at those. And man, I feel like part of it was just summed up, this series was kind of summed up with what was mentioned this morning is that we have a call, you guys. 
And we have a call, each and every one of us, to share the good news of what God has done in our life. And not to just look at God, you've got to do something supernatural. He's already done that um, with sending his son. But as people around the world, as they're looking for answers, we are God's plan. We're part of that plan of salvation to continue to spread the good news, to spread the gospel. And that's why we did a series like this, was not just to try to tackle some tough topics, but we want you to be able to speak to people in your workplace, in your school, what we mentioned this morning, in the cafeteria, in all of these areas, in your neighborhood, that you would be able to share what God's done in your life and bring hope and bring answers to people in the world that maybe they're going through a broken season, maybe they're hurting, they're looking for answers, and we're able to to be the hands of Christ extended, to be the voice of God in someone's life as they're looking for that. And so church, I wanna challenge you with that, that you would feel that burden that we talked about this morning, that weight of saying, God, use me, open up the doors for these conversations. God, help me to dig in deeper into your word and not just hear it on a Sunday morning, but to know it for myself, to really get deep in your word so that I can open up this discussion so that I can dialogue with people in the world that are that are looking for the answers to these difficult questions. And I wanna close by praying for us this morning. I'm gonna ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. And we mentioned it again this morning, we talk about it every Sunday morning, but we truly believe this, that we are broken people, that the message of the gospel is very clear all throughout scripture. It talks about that, how we have allowed sin to enter into our lives from the very first person, Adam and Eve, to all the way to our current time, we're fallen in our very nature and we're in need of a savior. We're in need of God to come and to rescue us. We can't fix ourselves. We can't be good enough on our own. We need Christ to come. We need the sacrifice that God gave through his son Jesus for our mistakes to cover our sin. And if you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship, we wanna give you the opportunity to enter into that relationship with Christ for that brand new start. And so in a moment, if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to stand up right where you're at and to come forward to the altar. As I mentioned, man, we are, we're broken people, but Jesus, God was not content to leave us in our brokenness. He's not a judge that was looking for us to mess up and then was excited when we did the wrong thing or made the wrong choice, but no, he came, he rescued us and redeemed us from our sin. He gave us a way out. He gave us an invitation to come and to be a part of his plan in his purpose. And if you're here this morning and you would say, Aaron, I don't have that relationship, or maybe I did at one point, but I've walked away from that. But this morning, I want to make that right. I want a brand new start in my life. If that's you, would you just stand up right where you're at and come forward to the altar? I want to pray with you this morning. Anyone at all, we'll take just a moment here. If God's speaking, don't miss this opportunity. If the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart, if you feel him drawing, you respond to that this morning. Well, if there's no one here in that situation this morning, church, I'm gonna ask if we would pray together. And right where you're at, I wanna ask that you would just talk to God and pray that God's spirit would lead you into these conversations, that God would open the door that we would feel that burden, that we would not allow anyone we're around to enter into eternity without knowing the gospel, without knowing God's story of good news that he's come to rescue us. And so let's just pray this morning and invite the Holy Spirit into every moment in our life to lead us into these conversations. Let's pray together.
God, I thank you so much once again for your word. Lord, you don't shy away from the difficult conversations that we have in our world and in our culture. God, you use your scripture. God, you use your word to answer these things. God, to give us insight into your character, into your nature, Lord. And this morning, I pray for us as new community church, God, I pray as we get ready to go back to school, God, I pray as we're in the office this week, God, I pray wherever we're at in the workplace, around family, God, as we're at our kids' sports games, God, use us. Lord, use us, God. We don't want to just experience your grace for ourselves and then let it stop there, God. But help us, God, to take your message into the world, Lord, to look, God, to people that are broken, God, and use our story, use our testimony, God. Use what you've done in our life. Use our knowledge of your scripture, God, to be able to share your message with others, God. We're praying for that, God, that our family members, our friends, God, our community, our school would be different because of where you have placed us, God. Let us be a reflection of your light. And we pray for this in your name. Amen. Amen, church.